Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. You are now tuned into our OITE review. Today, we'll be going over from proximal humerus to humeral shaft. Again, if you have not, hit the subscribe button and please go and leave us a rating. It takes five seconds. That would be very helpful. Uh, without further ado, we hope you all enjoy this episode on proximal humerus to about humeral shaft for our OITE reviews. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Um, so what is the treatment for a one part uh, proximal humerus fracture? Uh, sling and early range of motion. Um, the uh, humerus is very forgiving, uh, which is nice. Uh, if they are simple fracture patterns, they tend to heal very well. Uh, so, um, that's, that's going to be the first thing, but, uh, like we talked about before with that, that greater tuberosity is kind of its own entity within itself as it's uh, a part of the near classification. Um, what sort of things are we uh, going to be doing with these greater tuberosity fractures? Yeah. So, I mean, if you have an isolated greater tuberosity fracture, you know, with greater than five or 10 millimeters of displacement in a young patient, it's kind of pretty much a, typically an indication to fix it, you know, um, you know, open reduction, internal fixation. I know there are many different techniques, but for younger patients, you want to fix it with ORF. And in older patients, um, you know, some people may use non-absorbable sutures to fix these isolated greater, greater tuberosity fractures. You know, because you got to think about it, you have the, the pull of the supraspinatus is going to be pulling that posteriorly uh, and superiorly. Uh, you know, you're going to have that that constant deforming force. So these these displaced fractures, you know, typically need to be be treated in, in some way or shape or form. And um, and speaking of these uh, isolated, uh, isolated greater tuberosity fractures, what motion is, is typically blocked in, um, in just isolated greater tuberosity fractures and, and why? Yeah, and uh, uh, like you uh, talked about uh, a couple seconds ago was that that rotator cuff pull on the greater tuberosity is gonna pull that fragment uh, superior and posterior. Um, and so uh, when you think about it, as you uh, abduct the arm, you're going to be uh, kind of bringing that greater tuberosity fragment closer to the acromion and you can uh, risk some impingement there, but also uh, external rotation um, is going to be blocked a bit too, because it's going to go superior and posterior and you'll get that impingement on the inferior acromion. Um, and uh, uh, now that we've kind of gone over a few of the one part fractures now for these two part fractures, uh, if they are stable, uh, kind of, uh, they do, they are considered a part with their displacement or their angulation, but they're overall stable. How would you treat them? So for those, I, I treat them by, you know, I put them in a sling followed by physical therapy and, you know, studies show that early, you know, rehabilitation, uh, leads to better outcomes and, and it decreases the amount of pain. So for the, again, for these stable two-part, uh, proximal humerus fractures, you treat those with a non-operative treatment sling followed by rehabilitation. So, so when would you uh, when would you consider you know operative treatment for these two part proximal humerus fractures? Uh, yeah, so if I I mean I'm looking at the X ray, the CT scan, and uh, 
they do have considerable displacement and a block to their range of motion. Uh, I think that those are two good indications, as well as an anatomic neck involvement, especially if that anatomic neck has uh, fallen into varus rather than a valgus impacted. Um, and then uh, surgical options for this, I'm just going to kind of move forward uh, in this, is uh, ORIF with lock plating is uh, very commonly done. Uh, and I, I would say it's probably the preferred choice, but uh, if the fragments are large enough and you can capture all of them, uh, an intramedullary nail is not a bad option. And uh, for sick patients, obtunded patients, ones that you just want to stabilize uh, for the uh, short term, uh, you can consider like a, a CRPP type of fixation. Um, but uh, uh, what are the things you're looking for? Like if you do decide to fix these, um, what what things are you considering prior to uh, making that decision? Yeah, I mean, so you just wanna make sure, you know, they have a good enough bone stock and then a good bone supply, uh, blood supply to the to humeral head. So again, you know, you're thinking about the, those criteria, those hurdle criteria that we were talking about earlier. You're looking at the, uh, the metadiaphyseal extension and see if it's greater than eight millimeters. You're looking at the medial uh, you're looking at the medial hinge as well, you know, see if it's, see if it's intact, how much uh, a bone is still there in order to, to help um, keep, create that medial hinge. So those are some of the things that, uh, that you're looking at. And, and I know you, you just previously uh, spoke a little bit about um, locked plating. Uh, so what's an advantage to using, you know, these fixed angle lateral lock plates for proximal humerus fractures? Oh yeah. So uh, the, I mean, they have a good demonstration at the AO basic courses, which I don't know if they've even occurred in the era of COVID, but um, the, by using these fixed angle lock plates, you get a more secure and stable fixation, notably in comminuted and osteoporotic bones, since you're relying more on the screw plate interface for fixation rather than the screw bone interface. Um, and uh, you do, uh, uh, there, there are complications with that, which I think we will go over in a bit here, but um, uh, osteoporotic bone can tolerate these locked plates fairly well, but especially in a, like a physiologically young patient with these, I mean, they have excellent bone stock, they have a good blood supply. Their uh, physiology is more preferable uh, for uh, fracture healing. So um, you'll see better functional outcomes and higher patient satisfaction compared with a hemiarthroplasty because, I mean, you're, you're really, you're keeping their native anatomy. You're not doing too much to their overall anatomy to change it uh, in an unfavorable way. Um, and uh, what are the, when you do decide to uh, fix these with a, a open reduction internal fixation, um, what key points are you uh, going to be doing as you proceed through your uh, operation? Yeah, well, you know, some of the first things you want to do is you want to reduce the tuberosities, right? You want to reduce the greater tuberosity and the lesser tuberosity if they're uh, they fractured off. Uh, and just like you were saying a little bit earlier, thou shalt not varus. So you try to avoid a varus malreduction. And, and the reason why is if you have varus, this increases your rotator cuff lever arm which results in some additional torque and stress at the locking screws of the pins. Okay. So, you know, you're increasing that lever arm and this can increase the, the stress at the pins. Uh, I'm stressed at the, uh, at the, of the locking screws. Um, 
And so, you know, reduce the tuberosities, avoid various malreduction, and you want an anatomical reduction of the head in relationship to the shaft. This is another thing that helps reduce various malalignment. And then again, you want to have that medial cortical buttress to help counteract varus. So if there's a common theme here is thou shalt not varus on these um, proximal humerus fractures. So reduce tuberosities, reduce the head in relation to, to the shaft, and you know having a good medial cortical buttress helps reduce or helps counteract that varus. Um, what are some risk factors for losing a reduction in a proximal humerus fracture? Um, uh, like we said, uh, varus, 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 varus. I mean, you want to, <laughs> you want to avoid, or, uh, I mean, varus malreduction is going to, uh, screw you and as well as a lack of a medial cortical support, um, because it, it kind of goes into the concepts through like AO basic of the bridge plating that if you lose that, uh, the compression side of the uh, fracture and you're relying fixation on just the tension side, you will see that fail into varus, but then also like uh, osteoporosis, the bone mineral density and the elderly patients with the decreased uh, bone stock is uh, the things that you're gonna see in a loss of reduction and other complications for it. But uh, what sort of things, I mean, we talk about varus, we hate varus, it's, it's the worst thing that we can do. Um, how do we uh, prevent it? Yeah, so if you have patients that don't, you know, have a lot of bone stock or, or have a lot of medial cortical support, one thing you can use is a, is a fibula strut allograft, and that is something that kind of helps restore that medial cortical, uh, medial cortical support. And um, another thing you can do in, in patients that have, you know, these various malunions, but they don't have significant uh, glenohumeral degenerative joint changes, is that you can actually do a, a valgus-producing osteotomy for these patients. So. A thing that you can do to help prevent varus, again, is using a, a fibular allograft, uh, which will help restore that medial cortical support. And then in patients that have a varus malunion uh, without uh, humeral joint changes, so you look at the x-rays, you see the joint space is well-preserved, you don't see a lot of osteophytes, you don't see a lot of um, cyst formation or, or subchondral sclerosis, you can do a valgus-producing osteotomy for them. Now, like since it. we're talking a little bit about, you know, fixing these uh, proximal humerus fractures, you know, there are a lot of di there are different approaches. You know, you have the lateral approach. You can also do a dector, uh, pectoral approach. What are some of the uh, structures, the neurovascular structures that are at risk with these approaches? Uh, yeah, so going direct lateral, I have a few attendings that prefer to do that, but um, you have to identify and isolate the axillary nerve. Uh, which is a uh, distal to the uh, lateral acromion about five to seven centimeters. And then uh, through the delta pec approach, you wanna do a good job of uh, protecting the cephalic vein and also uh, making sure that you are not retracting medial on the strap muscles. So the ones that are coming off of the coracoid uh, to prevent uh, musculocutaneous nerve, uh, nerve praxia. Um, and then, uh, now that we've kind of dissected down, we're, we're ready to put the plate on the bone. Um, what sort of uh, uh, like key things are we trying to do with these plates to to help improve our fixation and improve our outcomes? Well, one is just just with 
simple plate placement. You want to make sure the plate's lateral to the biceps uh, tuberosity. And then, you know, another thing that is key in these is in these cases, and our attendings, you know, say this a lot, is you want to use calcar screws to help for that medial support. Again, thou shalt not varus. So, you know, we really want to make sure you have a good uh, medial support, uh, especially if you have to use those calcar screws, if you have to use um, those those strut um, allografts we were talking about earlier. But again, for at least for plating, uh, making sure that plate is lateral to biceps tuberosity and using those calcar screws for those medial support. Uh, and what are some complications that, that can be seen after plating proximal humerus fractures? Yeah, I mean, the you we all see the, the kind of the heartbreaking ones where the humeral head just seems to melt away uh, from yeah. ABN and then the uh, subsequent like very highly testable you will see this all the time is as that humeral head melts away um, you see the screw cut out and those uh, screws will be prominent within the uh, glenohumeral joint and start to uh, kind of attack the, the cartilage on the glenoid side um, which uh, is obviously not ideal um, but uh, things to remember for that are screw cut out and then AVN screw cutout is much more common. Um, and then along with the uh, intramedullary uh, nails for proximal humerus fractures, uh, the common complications we see with that are uh, some shoulder pain. You do violate the rotator cuff. Uh, if you split it in line with the fibers, you have a little bit less of this, but uh, still you're going through a uninjured structure to fix an injured structure, which is not, uh, ideal all the time. Um, rod migration, I've seen this happen before too, where uh, the proximal humerus bone stock is just not good with a single or a double screw fixation that you can get with the humeral nail. Um, you can see the non-union, you can see the varus malunion and uh, intramedullary nails. Uh, I know this is also true with uh, humeral shaft fractures. Um, they're equivalent to, to locked plating um, but uh, I tend to, to veer more towards the locked plating aspect than the intramedullary nails. Yeah. But um, talking about all these, all these surgeries that we like doing, are they necessary all the time? No, they're not. And, and, I, and I like how you just, um, you, you mentioned those complications of I am nailing. And I always, I always see shoulder pain as one of those quite, they always like harp on that. So definitely, yeah. um, definitely no shoulder pain is a, or you like decreased range of motion about the shoulder. It's something about the shoulder. They will talk about with I am nailing of proximal humerus fractures, but yeah, no, to answer your question, um, no, all three and four part proximal humerus fractures do not need to be treated operatively. Um, you know, there are numerous studies out that show that elderly patients or low demand patients can be treated non-operatively and have very similar outcomes um, between, again, operatively versus non-operatively treatment uh, of these three and four part proximal humerus fractures that are displaced as well. So, uh, again, these elderly patients, they that with these displaced proximal humerus fractures, very similar outcomes can be seen between operative and non-operative treatment. Now for young healthy patients with good bone stock in a three or a four part proximal humerus fracture, those are the ones you should probably fix. You should go and take them back, plate it, um, use those same principles that we were talking about earlier, and those patients tend to do well. Um, now what 
What is a surgical treatment option in the elderly with a three or four part proximal humerus fracture? If you're just trying to figure out, well, what are some, what are some things if we were going to consider surgery that we could do? Um, so you definitely uh, can do a hemi on them. Um, the uh, pitfall to that or the key point is you still need a functioning rotator cuff. Because uh, if you do not have a functioning rotator uh, cuff, then uh, it's not going to be that biomechanically sound. Um, so in order to kind of create for yourself a functioning rotator cuff is uh, the tuberosities need to be reduced uh, as you put that hemi in with either kind of a uh, around the world technique where you're passing sutures through the rotator cuff, you're passing it medial to the calcar carefully to avoid the axillary nerve and, and coming back posteriorly to secure the lesser and greater tuberosities. Um, right. But uh, for, for those, no, for, for those, and I think I've seen things or I've, I've heard people say like people can have, you know, a small rotator cuff tear and you can still do a hemiarthroplasty if you just repair, you know, you repair the tear, but they just need a functioning rotator cuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, go ahead. Uh, oh, well, the, the reason why that those are so important is um, if they have a non-union, you're basically, you're creating a, uh, uh, or you're, or you're still keeping that near part, uh, of the proximal humerus, uh, a real entity. So if it's persistently displaced, you're going to have impingement. You're going to have some decreased range of motion and with increased displacement, you're gonna have increased incidence of non-union of that, uh, portion of the fracture. So if you place a component too high, you get uh, impingement with decreased abduction, and if it's out too lateral, then it inhibits external rotation. Um, so uh, in order to properly place a, a hemiarthroplasty, um, what anatomic landmarks can help you do that? Yeah, so, you know, you can, one thing you can use to help judge your humeral height in shoulder arthroplasty is you can look at the, use the superior border of the pectoralis major tendon. And the humeral height is typically around 5.6 centimeters proximal to that. So that is one way that you can judge your uh, your humeral head, uh, your humeral height in shoulder arthroplasty. Now we talked about you know we talked about patients undergoing a hemiarthroplasty uh, that need that functioning rotator cuff as well as healed uh, reduced tuberosities. Uh, but what are the indications for a reverse total shoulder? Uh, elderly patients with three and four part fractures uh, and the tuberosities are comminuted, so you're not able to do that hemi with a reduction of the tuberosities, uh, just because as we know, and we'll cover more in the shoulder uh, and elbow section is that a reverse doesn't rely on the rotator cuff, but it does require a functioning deltoid. Um, you can use a uh, reverse for a revision of a failed fixation. So you tried an ORIF, didn't work. You can always put a, a reverse in as a, as a salvage. Um, and uh, again, if they, you fix it, everything works out great, but then they just start to develop uh, glenohumeral arthritis, maybe a, a rotator cuff tear and rotator cuff arthropathy. Um, you can always continue with that and put a, a reverse in there too.
Right. Okay. And, and, and we're saying, so, so what are, again, what are some of the mechanics of a reverse total shoulder that makes it uh, usable in patients that have, you know, comminuted to Rossi fractures and rotator cuff incompetence, because we talked about a little earlier with hemiarthroplasty that you needed a functioning rotator cuff and healed two Rossities. So what's the difference? Yeah. So a, a reverse, uh, it medializes the center of rotation of the glenohumeral joint. So it uh, increases and provides a, uh, an advantage for the deltoid uh, lever arm. So you no longer require that uh, rotator cuff to uh, essentially like unlock the shoulder from a relaxed to a 30 degree abduction. So the deltoid can uh, work uh, favorably. If you increase the lever arm, you don't necessarily need the rotator cuff to uh, provide that the intricacies of the motion there. Um, and then uh, I think we've kind of beat the proximal humerus uh, into <laughs> the ground. We did. Beat uh, it stick. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I think we kind of let's just keep going down the upper extremity and, and move on to, uh, to some humeral shaft uh, fractures. So, um, I mean, let, let's say we see a, an isolated closed humeral shaft fracture in the uh, ER. What uh, What's within your acceptable uh, kind of uh uh thought process for treating it non-operatively yeah so you know we're looking when we're looking at the x-rays you know again these humeral shaft fractures when we look at the varus and the valgus and you know they, you can accept up to 30 degrees of varus or 30 degrees of valgus and then you can accept up to 20 degrees of anterior angulation and you can accept up to 15 degrees of malrotation and, and, and then when you look at shortening, you can set up to three centimeters of shortening. So the most is, I'm surprised you can accept that much varus, slash value is 30 degrees. Um, and then, you know, this, these are gonna be things after a reduction. So of course, when, you know, when it first comes in, it may look crazy, but then you say, you know, you send the first year or the second year, you know, whoever is on call to tell them to try to reduce it, put in a co-op splint, try to get it, you know, a nice valgus mold on it. Cause we know these tend to fall into varus, but you know, we go there and we, they, they get their mold, they get the reduction and we look, we want it to be within these parameters. So, you know, we can again, accept up to 30 degrees of varus or valgus for these humeral shaft fractures, up to 20 degrees of anterior angulation up to 15 degrees of malrotation and up to three centimeters of shortening. Uh, now, what is the treatment of choice? You know, say that patient came in and you sent your intern down there and he did great, to, he or she did a great job, um, got the varus or valgus. It's in about five degrees of valgus. It, it's, there's no anterior angulation. It's not malrotated. And, and he got, they, they got it just lined up perfectly uh, as far as shortening. So it's not short. Uh, what's your treatment of choice uh, for that, you know, that humeral shaft fracture that's within that acceptable alignment? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, I mean, according to Sarmiento, uh, we can really treat that fracture uh, non-operatively. You put it in a coaptation splint, which uh, is probably the worst or uh, least fun splint to place in orthopedics, but you want to make <laughs> sure you fun. get that splint as far into the axilla as possible. And you want to bring it up past the deltoid laterally uh, so that you really kind of, you're essentially doing a sugar tongue splint for the uh, humerus. And uh, you do that for about a week or two, let the uh, 
initial swelling from the injury calm down a bit, and uh, then you transition them to a, a fracture brace or a Sarmiento brace, uh, which you can see up to 90% union or more, according to Sarmiento, uh, through secondary bone healing and callus formation. Um, right. But uh, a new and very uh, useful study and paper just came out that, that says, hey, you know what? Maybe not all of these can be treated non-operatively. How do we how do we catch them? How do we catch the ones that we are are concerned about? Yeah. So um, you know the 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 patients are the ones that are where we have a contraindication for for functional bracing. You know, and, and these humeral shaft fractures. These are going to be the patients um, that have a brachial plexus injury, or the patients that have you know, severe soft tissue injuries or bony loss, um, you know, patients that have vascular injuries that require repair, uh, you know, patients that for one day, you know, they, after you see them in the ED and you, you high-fived your, uh, your junior and you're all happy because it looks good. And then they come in the clinic, you know, three days later and, and it has 45 degrees of varus uh, angulation and, and 30 degrees of, um, of anterior uh, angulation. Uh, the you know aka they have an inability to maintain a reduction that's something that you probably wouldn't would be a contraindication uh, for functional bracing um, but things that it's not is it's not comminution so if you have a comminuted humeral shaft fracture that is not an indication uh, that is not a contraindication to try bracing and if you have a radial nerve policy that is also not a contraindication for uh, for functional bracing. So you can brace patients that have comminuted, uh, comminuted humeral shaft fractures with a radial nerve palsy. And, and what's the most common reason for, uh, well, the most common reason for converting from non-op to operative treatment is, is non-union, which, which can be seen, you know, at around six weeks. And that is when you kind of have gross, um, gross movement at the, at the, at the fracture site. Okay. And, and and that is you know this 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 six week mark you know it, this this whole thing is is based on um, a study um, this was a large multi center study published in the Journal of uh, Trauma in 2020 uh, the name of it is is the effects of surgery versus functional bracing on functional outcome among patients with closed displaced humeral shaft fractures the fish randomized control trial. And uh, this was like a large multi-center study identified a 29% surgical conversion rate with non-union, again, as the most common reason for surgical intervention after the failure of a functional uh, race. Yep. So what are the, we talked about, you know, we talked about bracing and, and you know, how they had excellent outcomes up to 90% union in patients with an acceptable alignment, but what are some um, absolute indications to operate on humeral shaft fractures? This can be confusing, uh, you know, so hopefully we'll break it down pretty well, but it can sometimes be confusing, you know, when do you operate, when do you not operate, et cetera, but absolute indications. So yeah, the, uh, the absolute indications we're looking for, one open fracture, and that's really more geared towards the, uh, the debridement and uh, decreasing uh, chance of uh, infection in those. Um, ones that intra that go uh, proximally uh, or distally with intraarticular extension, 
uh, ones that are associated with uh, vascular injury. Um, and the reason why vascular more so than just neurologic injury, because some of the time with these uh, radial nerve palsies, you can continue to treat them non-operatively as you uh, talked about, but the vascular ones uh, that need repair, you need to stabilize the bony anatomy around it for the success of that vascular repair. And then uh, a floating elbow, you wanna make sure that the elbow is stabilized above and below. And then uh, relative indications, um, impending pathologic fracture, which is kind of right up my wheelhouse. It's not a weight-bearing bone, so um, the mural's criteria isn't as uh, uh, prominent here. Um, failure of closed management um, is a relative indication for it. And then, uh, like we talked about earlier in the uh, previous episode uh, with just general orthopedic uh, trauma concepts is uh, polytrauma and bilateral uh, humerus fractures. You want to give them uh, functioning upper extremities for better mobilization, better hygiene, uh, activities of daily living, all that stuff. Um, so if we are going to fix it, uh, what sort of uh, um, kind of hardware do you think you're going to use? Yeah. So, you know, for these, if you're fixing, you know, a humeral shaft in these polytrauma patients, you'd probably use a thicker plate. So you might use something instead of a 3.5, you may use a 4.5 millimeter DCP plate or dynamic, uh, four, four or five DCP plate. And, uh, you know, the things with this is the studies with these plates show that it, it allows early safe weight bearing through the extremity. So, again, these patients with these bilateral, you know, humerus fractures or these uh, polytrauma patients, this can allow them to kind of, you know, use a walker with rehab and, you know, do different things like that to try to help get them functional. Now, we spoke a little bit earlier about proximal humerus fractures and we talked about you know, going lateral and we had a, you know, the, the axillary nerve was a, was a, was something that we need to be worried about. And then we talked about the uh, kind of the delta pec approach. Um, what are some approaches uh, and uses for humeral shaft fractures? Uh, yeah. So one, uh, the one that we use uh, a lot here in, uh, in Fresno is, uh, the anterior lateral approach, which is just a continuation of the delta pec approach, it's very useful for proximal uh, two thirds. You can extend really far down the humeral shaft with this approach, um, and you also gain access proximally in case there is some intraarticular extension uh, into the glenohumeral humeral joint. Um, you're kind of you're going through uh, the brachialis, which has its own dual innervation, so it's kind of an intramuscular plane rather than a, it's an intramuscular and internervous plane uh, between uh, radial muscular cutaneous. Uh, you do have the direct anterior, um, which is similar, but in a little bit different uh, area than the interlateral. Uh, the direct lateral approach, which is useful in distal one-third, but uh, as we know, you've got to be careful of that radial nerve uh, spiraling down the posterior humerus and uh, coming out the uh, lateral intermuscular septum. Um, I think it's around like uh, 10 centimeters uh, proximal to the uh, radial capitellar joint. Uh, and then obviously you can have, uh, you can access everything posteriorly through a tricep splitting versus sparing approaches. And the primary limiting factor of the posterior approach is uh, that axillary nerve up proximally, but you can still gain a lot of access to that humeral shaft posteriorly.
And we hope you all enjoyed this review episode. Again, go and hit the link in our description and sign up for exclusive email stuff. <laughs> Anyways, but no, uh, we will be putting a audio uh, companion book together soon for this podcast review series. So if you want early dibs on that or maybe even some discounts or you may even get some things uh, uh, highly discounted or even early. So go and hit that link in our description and we will see you next time.